Well, today, brothers and sisters, we are looking at the second text in the book of Exodus that relates to Moses seeing God's glory. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first text, or what I referred to as the first bookend, uh, at the end of Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23. There we saw in the fact that God tells Moses he could see his glory but never his face, we saw what theologians refer to as God's incomprehensibility, the fact that God cannot be comprehended by man or any creature. We saw that this by no means means that God is entirely hidden from us, that he's absolutely unknown to us, but rather it means we can never wrap our mind around God. I love the way our confession of faith puts it. It says that our God is, quote, every way infinite. You and I, in every way, are finite. We cannot wrap our head, which is the meaning of comprehend, around the God who is every way infinite. We can apprehend certain things. Indeed, there's much we can apprehend about him through his word. And yet to comprehend, that can never be said of God. If you remember, I, I read the quote from Augustine. If you comprehend, then it is not God that you comprehend, right? We're dealing with God here. We saw that this doctrine of divine incomprehensibility, far from making God cold and distant and boring, is actually exhilarating to the soul. It is a deep fountain of joy and delight for the Christian. In fact, we saw that again and again through Scripture, you see there's times when the, the biblical writers are they're writing about God and, and they almost just stop. It's like I can go no further and they just break forth in praise. His incomprehensibility just uh, gives birth to doxology again and again in Scripture. And it's because he is such a great joy to consider the fact that he cannot be comprehended is a great source of joy. Furthermore, we saw that because God is incomprehensible, oh, I'm sorry, I got, <laughs> we saw that if God were, were not incomprehensible, sorry, not only would he not be worthy of praise, he would not be a deep fountain of joy, but neither could he be said to save, very importantly. We considered that this was the great error of those in history referred to as the Socinians, that they made the limits of human reason the box that God could exist in. In fact, they would go so far as to say that which cannot be comprehended by reason ought to be rejected about God. The problem is when you do that, when you make human comprehension the limits of what God can be and do, you destroy the Christian faith. There are many things that our faith is absolutely built on that are not contrary to reason, but they go beyond it. They are not bound by human reason. And the Socinians, so sadly, by making human comprehension the limits of God, they actually just lost the faith. They thought they were preserving it, having some kind of rational faith. They had neither of those things in the very end. And lastly, we considered... Although God is truly incomprehensible to us, yet if we want the clearest picture of who he is, what he is like, he has actually revealed it to us, and we need look no further than his son, Jesus Christ. And we saw Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he makes an allusion to our passage. He said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Like Moses, we cannot see the face of God lest we die. He's infinite. However, if you want to know what he's like, look to Jesus. In him dwells the fullness of God. That's why in Christ, not in philosophy, not in anything else, in Christ alone are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, today we are going to begin begin to look at our second bookend of Moses seeing God's glory, this time when Moses comes down the mountain. As we look at this passage, we're going to do something slightly different from what we normally do. If you remember, I said two weeks ago 
that Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 has some very profound things to say, particularly about this second bookend. Profound things about the nature and blessings of the new covenant, as well as things about Christ, what awaits us in glory, and profound things about the Mosaic covenant. Paul there will, in fact, give a spirit-inspired commentary on our very text, and we would do well to see what that apostle of Christ had to say. Now, let me just say at the outset here, Paul says some things in 2 Corinthians that are hard to understand. Paul says many things in just about all of his epistles that are hard to understand. In fact, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, concerning Paul's writings, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. We might say, Peter, that is an understatement, right? Paul is profound at times. This passage will be no exception. And I confess to you that um, even though I've been studying what Paul says there for two weeks, uh, I am still fully coming into grasping the passage as a whole. In fact, uh, you ever had like a eureka moment in the middle of the night? I had one of those at five o'clock this morning. I was like, oh, right? I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Um, All that to say... Paul says some deep things here. So you're going to have to track with me. You're you're really having to track with Paul. I don't have any really deep things to say, but I'm tracking with Paul. So you're going to have to kind of give me some of that that mental focus. I'm hoping to avoid this feeling like a Sunday school. I I hope it won't, okay? Um, But we will have to be kind of uh, dialed in a little bit. Nevertheless, there is a lot of gospel food for the soul in what we will be looking at. In fact, Paul is getting to the heart of the gospel. There is some hearty stuff for us um, in this sermon and and the next um, as we look at this. Well, the way we're going to do this, in some ways you could call this a mega sermon, if you will, a mega sermon in two parts. Um, The reason for that is this. Excuse me. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul appeals to this passage in Exodus 34... He does so for a very specific purpose, and it's really just one part of his larger discussion on several themes all throughout that epistle. That means that in order to truly understand what Paul says about Exodus 34, we kind of first have to understand why he says it in the first place, and we have to understand some of his surrounding arguments. Otherwise, we're kind of dealing with this text in a vacuum, And it really won't make sense to us at all. It'll be really hard to see how Paul comes to his conclusions if we don't kind of build a framework around it. Once we do that, I think we're going to see some, we're going to be able to connect some dots. But apart from that, you kind of can't just jump straight into it, okay? That means what we will be doing today is in many ways simply laying the groundwork for that second sermon. We will have good application today, Lord willing, Um, some very good points of of covenant theology. Um, Nevertheless, it it may seem like some of the payoff, uh, like we're just preparing for that in the following sermon. Um, But it will be worth it, I promise, by the time we get through that. There will be much much to to see there. Let me just ask, I, I, I know I've said this several times where I'm like, did anyone ever grow up thinking this? And I always thought that, and people are like, Pastor, no one has ever thought that that I know of, Right? Who here has ever heard that the reason why Moses veiled himself was because it would fade over time, but he liked glowing and he didn't want people to to know it was fading? So you heard that? You did. Who'd you hear that from? Okay. No, I'm... Anyway, Dennis. Okay. Anyone else hear that? Okay. Thank you. I thought that was like a super common interpretation. That's what I had been told. Um, I grew up in Calvary chapels. I think Chuck Smith taught that. And so then I called Jason Delgado because he's like a Calvary guy too back in the day. So did you ever hear that? And he's like, no, I never heard that before, Pastor. And I was like, okay, I guess it's just me. That's not what Paul's saying, actually. We'll, we'll look at that. Um, we'll disagree with that, okay? So you, you'll be shown wrong, Dennis, all right? The Lord will humble you. Anyway, Welcome back from vacation. Anyway, that being said, let's go, let's go ahead and dive in and let's begin to lay 
this groundwork. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. The first thing we want to do is consider for a moment the epistle of 2 Corinthians as a whole. The epistle of 2 Corinthians as a whole. You have to see the big picture first. In God's providence, we actually just read through 2 Corinthians uh, in our scripture reading, so Lord willing, much of this will be familiar to you. Well, what is the big picture of 2 Corinthians? I would say the main theme or purpose of the epistle, the occasion of 2 Corinthians, is Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry and trying to be fully reconciled to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, which Paul had uh, founded, had apparently been led astray by certain false teachers who are claiming that they are true apostles and undermining Paul's apostleship. For example, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 5, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Super apostles, they're said kind of tongue-in-cheek by Paul. They were, however, some kind of false teachers. Now, it's probably unlikely here that Paul's opponents were those that we call the Judaizers. Um, those who were teaching that uh, salvation and justification was a mixture of God's grace and doing works of the law. That was very much the teaching that the Galatians had been uh, effect, uh, infected with, which we just read Paul going off on them because he says, you know, um, uh, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by the hearing of faith or, or the works of the law? That was a different kind of opponent these are most likely not the Judaizers. We do know that they are Jewish. Paul says in chapter 11, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. As far as what kind of false teachings they were promoting, it's probably a good guess that it was some kind of mixture of Greek philosophy and Christianity, but was really more philosophy than Christianity. We see this in a few little small things that Paul says here and there. For example, he says in chapter 11, verses 5 through 6, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Now there, when Paul says he is unskilled in speaking, he does not mean... He's a bad public speaker. I think the opposite. I think Paul would have probably been the most amazing preacher you could ever hear, right? It most likely means that he was not classically trained in Greek rhetoric. Greek rhetoric was kind of one of the, the founding, founding stones of education in the Greek-Roman world. If you wanted to have some kind of life in public, public life, politics or something... You had to be some kind of a good speaker, and there was a whole study and discipline of what that looked like. In fact, in the Olympic Games, we refer to them as the Olympic Games, they had poetry contests as well um, in which uh, certain contestants would be judged, and you would be judged not only by your content, but by following the rules of Greek rhetoric, uh, uh, Greeks, it's actually really interesting to read some of the things they, they say, how, how entirely nuanced they could be. It was like a whole science, if you could call it that, of thought at the time. These men, by critiquing Paul that he doesn't speak well, shows probably a Greek influence on them, and that Paul was not classically trained in Greek rhetoric, and so they're, they're, um, they're looking down upon him because of that. Furthermore, from what Paul says elsewhere... It's clear that these false teachers were not only looking down upon him as being less than a true apostle, rather they went further than that and accused Paul of being a charlatan 
and of trying to take advantage of the Corinthians. And interestingly, you're like, how would this be proof? (laughs) They pointed to the fact that Paul ministered to the Corinthians free of charge. You're like, yeah, that's the telltale sign of someone taking advantage of you. I think what they argued is he has some kind of an angle. I know it sounds good, but it probably sounds too good to be true. He may not be charging you. He has some kind of plan. That's kind of how they were doing it. Look at us. We're just simple, humble men. We, yes, we receive our pay from our ministry. He doesn't do that. Oh, I would be, that sounds like a scam. That sounds too good to be true. For example, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 4, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Or chapter 12, 14 through 18, here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? So these men, uh, these false apostles, were, were leading the Corinthians astray and getting them to really undermine the ministry of the man who is truly their spiritual father. Ironically, these false teachers, according to the Paul, according to Paul, um, who were charging fees, they were actually the ones who were the charlatans. Paul says in second, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, he's critiquing these men, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. These men were peddling God's word. God's word to them was a means of surviving. It it was a vocation that you might go into like any other vocation. The word of God was a commodity to be profited upon, while for Paul and the true apostles, it was the word of God. They were commissioned by God. It was not one more way to make money. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, connected to all of this is where Exodus 34 comes in. Another major theme of 2 Corinthians is Paul's apostolic boldness, and confidence. Paul, as I'm sure you are aware, was a very bold man. That man was the energizer bunny. You try to knock him down and he keeps on coming. You could stone him and leave him for dead. He would get back up and go back into the very same town and preach. He was very bold in his ministry. It seems that these false apostles not only accused Paul of being a charlatan, But it seems they also tried to say that Paul was all talk, or that maybe with his supposed boldness, he was really just being a bully, or maybe he's he's manipulating you. He's a horrible person. He's just trying to take advantage of you, and when, when when he can't do that, he manipulates you. And so, one of Paul's main arguments throughout the the epistle of 2 Corinthians is defending his boldness and confidence as an apostle. For example, he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, I am acting with great boldness towards you. Or chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. That's what they're saying. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Or chapter 10, verses 9 through 12, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. 
let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present, okay? So Paul has to defend his boldness. When Paul defends his great boldness, his great confidence and hope, he grounds it ultimately in the nature and the blessings of the new covenant of which he was a minister. If you want to know what made Paul, Paul, if you want to know what made Paul the kind of man who could experience shipwreck, false brothers, uh, nakedness, all kinds of things, and yet to keep on going, you have to look no further than the new covenant and its nature and its blessings. That fueled Paul's apostolic boldness and zeal, not vanity, not manipulation, as these super apostles were claiming. And so Paul says in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And yet, here, when Paul grounds his boldness and confidence in the new covenant, he goes on to make a comparison between himself and Moses, and he refers to Exodus 34. He says in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, "...since we have such a hope..." We are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moreover, more than simply a comparison between himself and Moses, Paul goes on in the larger discussion of chapter 3 to compare the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant as well. In fact, as we'll see, he argues that just as his boldness is grounded in the covenant of which he is a minister, so also Moses' lack of boldness, veiling himself, stems from the covenant of which he is a minister, the Mosaic covenant. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me here? Paul's boldness comes from the new covenant. He makes a comparison between himself and Moses. Paul says, I am bold, not like Moses, who couldn't be bold and veiled himself, and that stems from the nature of the Mosaic covenant. And so, what I'd like us to do with the rest of the time that we have today is first to consider this comparison between the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant and try to understand that at first. And that will really prepare us three weeks from now, <laughs> Hopefully you'll remember what I said three weeks from now. But that will prepare us by then to walk through 2 Corinthians 3 and kind of take our time. But to jump straight there, I think we would kind of miss a few things, okay? So let's, let's look. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. beginning in verse 5. If you take notes, I would encourage you, even if you don't, this might be a good exercise today, I would encourage you to make two columns. One column can be the Mosaic Covenant. The other column can be the New Covenant. Um, I'm a very visual learner, and there will be a lot of ways of seeing visual side-by-side comparisons in this comparison that Paul makes. And so I would encourage you if that's something you'd like uh, to do. beginning in verse 5. Paul says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now, right there, that should signal to you that although Paul doesn't use the word covenant all throughout this passage, I think, in fact, That's the only time he uses it in in this larger passage. Yet, he's going to make a comparison between two covenants. The reason we can know that is because the very concept and wording, the terminology 
of new covenant implies an old covenant, right? In fact, even in the Old Testament, whenever you encounter the new covenant, it's almost always juxtaposed to the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant as well. For example, the famous prophecy, Jeremiah 31 through 32, or chapter 31, verses 31 through 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Okay? So all that to say, although he only uses the word covenant once, this is a comparison between two covenants and I think anyone who would have read the Old Testament would have immediately, as soon as Paul uses the word new covenant, they know that that's a comparison between new and old, okay? So Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The first contrast that you could put in your two columns is under the Mosaic Covenant, you can put the word letter, and under the New Covenant, you can put spirit. Paul says, uh, made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Now, this contrast must be properly understood. In fact, throughout history, it has been twisted Uh, time and time again, to undermine the written word of God. In fact, the Quakers, we we think of them as oatmeal people, Um, the Quakers were mystics. They were all, they they loved the spirit, the quote-unquote spirit. Um, And they would downplay the word of God, and they said, well, we're not bound by this, because this right here is the letter. We rely on revelations from the spirit, right? Now, of course, we would say, The Spirit um, never works apart from the Word of God. And to truly understand the Word of God, you need the Spirit. But we would not go so far as to say this is entirely the letter and the Spirit gives us these revelation. That's not at all what this is talking about. And if you ever hear anyone talking that way, they totally misunderstand the text. How should we understand the contrast between letter and Spirit? Well, let's keep on reading. I think it'll help us the more we go. It continues in verse 6, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Notice here, He references letters carved on stone. That's obviously a a reference to the law of Moses, specifically the Ten Commandments. And in fact, we just read in Exodus 34, verse 10, uh, or not verse 10, I'm sorry, in verses 27 through 28, God commands Moses, um, Moses writes on the Ten Commandments. So already he's making a couple connections back to the written word, the, the Ten Commandments themselves. Okay. Notice, however, he says that the letter or the law, this is contrasted with the Spirit. Now, why would that be contrasted with the Spirit? Why the letter versus the Spirit? What's the difference there? Well, we skipped over it briefly, but look again at verse 6. Paul says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the contrast between letter and spirit is really a contrast between that which kills, on the one hand, the letter, and that which gives life, on the other, the spirit. If you want, just keep filling out these two columns as we go along. But what does that mean? When Paul says that the letter, when he says the law kills, what does that mean? Well, when he says that, He simply tells us that the law, all it does is it tells us what must be done. However, it provides no heart change that we might do it. And in fact, because it does not provide a heart change, 
it actually makes the heart more sinful than it would be otherwise. It exacerbates sin within the soul. Our hearts are so sinful that when they are confronted with the clear word of God, do not do such a thing, they're so rebellious against the Lord, they decide, oh, I'm going to specifically do that thing because you told me not to. That's the effect of that upon the sinner. However, the wages of sin is death, which means the law, because it exacerbates sin in sinners, means they incur more guilt, making their condemnation and death from God all um, absolutely certain. This would be like, um, well, no, we won't go into that. Um, That's a bad analogy. Never mind. We'll think another time. Um, Consider what Paul says in Romans 7. Turn with me real quick to Romans 7, verses 9 through 13. Romans 7, 9 through 13. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That means then, when he says the letter kills, that's what he's talking about. The letter produces more death. It makes us incur more guilt and wrath um, before God, okay? What does it mean that the Spirit gives life, however? What does that mean? Look back at 2 Corinthians uh, verse, uh, chapter 3. Look at verse 3. We didn't quite read this, but look at verse 3. <clears throat> he says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Here we see that the contrast between letter and spirit is also a contrast between that which is externally written and that which is internally written. Whereas the law commands, and we can see it externally, it nowhere provides a change of heart to do what is actually good. The spirit, however, which is one of the main blessings of the new covenant, actually provides a heart change And for the Christian, the law is not one merely external, but primarily one that is internal and written on the heart. In fact, this is the first major blessing described of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. It says there in verse 33, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts." That, however, did not come from the Mosaic Covenant. And so Paul says in verse 7, the Mosaic Covenant is actually a ministry of death. You could put that in the the column there. It's a ministry of death. It ministers death. But verse 8, the New Covenant is a ministry of the Spirit. It provides a heart change, making the law not merely external, but internal. John basically says the thing in John, same, the same thing in John chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, right? But Paul's contrast is not finished yet in 2 Corinthians 3. Look with me at verse 9. Here we see two more things you can add in the columns. Verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Here Paul calls the Mosaic Covenant the ministry of condemnation. Not just the ministry of death, but the ministry of condemnation. By contrast, the New Covenant is the ministry of righteousness. 
not merely the ministry of the Spirit, but the ministry of righteousness. Now, the phrase ministry of righteousness is fairly, uh, I'm sorry, ministry of condemnation is fairly straightforward. The law thunders condemnation, it confronts sinners, right? The phrase ministry of righteousness needs to be unpacked a little bit. Righteousness here does not mean God's uh, essential righteousness. It's not referring to his moral character, his goodness, his justice, we could say. Um, That's not what is in sight here. Rather, if you wanted to add a word to help you understand this, it's the word imputed. It's imputed righteousness that is in view here. In fact, Paul often uses the term righteousness. You see him do this in Romans 5 a lot. He uses it as shorthand for justification. Justification simply means to be declared righteous, right? And so righteousness refers to the free gift of imputed righteousness, which is given in our justification. And it makes sense of the contrast, right? If righteousness is imputed righteousness, it makes sense of the contrast because that's, just, that's juxtaposed with what? Condemnation. Justification is the opposite of being condemned. Condemnation is being declared guilty. Justification is being declared righteous. Now, this will be substantiated uh, in a little, little bit more here. But what I want you to note is that with this contrast between condemnation and righteousness, Paul actually shows us the second big blessing of the new covenant, which Jeremiah mentions in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah there says in verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Those two blessings, the blessing of a changed heart and justification, those are the heart of the new covenant. Um, Calvin referred to them as the duplex gratia, the twofold grace. Uh, There was another theologian who referred to it as the duplex beneficium, the twofold benefit of the covenant of grace, the regenerated heart and justification. However, Paul continues to describe the ministry of the new covenant. He says, because we are justified, we are therefore reconciled with God. And he goes on actually in chapter 5. If you want to turn with me to chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, he goes on to continue calling the new covenant the ministry of reconciliation. There's there's not a... uh, Uh, a corollary to this on the Mosaic Covenant column, but you can imply it doesn't affect reconciliation between God, okay? The New Covenant is the uh, ministry of reconciliation. He says in chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness to God. Notice that even there, by justifying us, God has reconciled us, right? I would argue then that actually reconciliation between man and God is another feature of the new covenant described in Jeremiah 31. In fact, we actually read some of that already. He says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. They shall all be in a saving covenantal relationship, reconciled to me, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Justification leads to being reconciled with God. 
These blessings, the life-giving spirit, justification and reconciliation were not given by the Mosaic Covenant, and so God saw fit. If reconciliation were ever to be effected, it would have to come through another covenant. The author of Hebrews says, commenting on Jeremiah 31, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he, God, finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In other words, the very announcement of a new covenant shows that the old covenant could never ultimately solve man's greatest problem, being cut off from God because of his sin. And this, the fact that Paul was a minister of this covenant, and we will see next time we meet that this covenant, justification, being reconciled to God, gives us a confidence and boldness, not just with God being reconciled, but with humans as well. That is what fueled Paul's boldness. Now, we will conclude here with the time we have left. Um, as I said, we're kind of just, we're, it's a layup shot, all right? We're getting ready for the, for the next time we meet. Um, I do want to leave you with some final thoughts. First, what we have seen before us today is nothing else but the law-gospel distinction the law-gospel distinction. Now, sadly, that phrase, the law-gospel distinction, has fallen on hard times among Reformed folks today. There are many who will say it's not Reformed, it's Lutheran. There are some who will even go so far as to say it's antinomian, right? It's, it's sinful, this law-gospel distinction. I would argue instead, not only is the law-gospel distinction biblical, but it is very Reformed. It's also very, very Baptist. Um, this is like where we come from, the distinction between the two covenants, just so you know. And I would say it's at the heart of what led to the Reformation. Therefore, even Calvin, right, can say, commenting on 2 Corinthians 3, thus from the law, sinners receive nothing but condemnation, for there God demands what is due to him and yet gives no power to perform it. But by the gospel, men are regenerated and reconciled to God by the free remission of their sins so that it is the ministration of righteousness and so of life. I don't know that anyone has ever accused Calvin of being a Lutheran or antinomian, okay? You find those kinds of statements in Reformed writers all the time. Furthermore, and this is very important to notice, the law-gospel distinction does not take place in a vacuum. More properly speaking, it's actually a distinction between two different kinds of covenants, one of law and one of gospel. When we say that the law and gospel are opposed to one another like oil and water, we mean not the bare commandments of God, which are good, which we read every week. Rather, we mean a covenant of law is opposed in principle to a covenant of grace. A covenant in which God offers reward upon the fulfillment of works of the law, that is the opposite of a covenant in which God grants freely blessings of mere gift. Those two things are different. Paul says the one is receiving wages, the other is receiving a free gift. And yet it's really a distinction between two different kinds of covenants, two different terms of receiving blessing. One doing works of the law and one receiving it by grace through faith. We should conclude from this then that the Mosaic covenant, though put in place by God for a purpose, is nevertheless no part of the covenant of grace. Here we would disagree with our beloved Presbyterian brothers and sisters and many of our Dutch Reformed brothers and sisters who I love so much. And yet, in order to justify infant baptism, they make the Mosaic covenant the same for substance 
with the new covenant. Sadly, when you do that, you hazard turning the gospel into the law and losing the distinction between the law and the gospel. Why? Because those distinctions are ultimately grounded in distinctions of covenants. And when you blur the two kinds of covenants, you will eventually, in due time, blur the distinction between law and gospel. Furthermore, if I could leave uh, what I would call the smoking gun, uh, if you will, I think this is a smoking gun, that the Mosaic covenant uh, is is a covenant of law offering uh, life in the land of Canaan. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Our Presbyterian brothers, those who would probably say the Mosaic covenant is part of the covenant of grace, yet the majority of them would also say that Adam was in a covenant of works in the garden, okay? A covenant of works in the garden. However, as we read Paul make another comparison between Adam and Christ, the covenant of works in the garden and the new covenant, listen to how what he says about the covenant in the garden echoes the covenant of Moses. Just, it's fascinating, the two, the two things he says. Look at verse 10. For if while we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, okay, he's already talking about reconciliation, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Listen to the comparison now. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Sorry. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that is another passage in which Paul says many profound in things that are hard to understand. Let me summarize what he says in a side-by-side comparison. With Adam, you have Adam's sin, which leads to condemnation, which leads to death. Sin, condemnation, death. With Christ, you have his obedience, which leads to justification, which leads to eternal life. You see the pattern there? Sin, condemnation, death, obedience of Christ, justification, life. That's so close to the comparison he makes between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant as well. So many of the same terms. This is why we would say, I would say, that in the Mosaic Covenant, there is a kind of republication of the law that was given to Moses as well. Um, Our Presbyterian brothers might not be uh, persuaded by that. I myself am, and we can, we can hug it out in the end, but I think that's persuasive. I think that's a smoking gun, quite frankly. Um, all right, lastly, Christian, rest and take great peace and comfort on this Lord's Day. In fact, confidence and boldness 
that you have been justified and are therefore reconciled to God in the new covenant. You have been born again. You've been given the Spirit. The law of God has been written on your heart. You can now fulfill the commandments of God, not perfectly, but by the enabling of the Spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Rest in that, Christian. Lastly, for anyone here who does not yet know the Lord, you are not yet a partaker of the blessings of the new covenant. This this covenant that Paul talks about, Paul has a special message for you from 2 Corinthians. Did you know that? He says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Be reconciled to God. He's offering free reconciliation. He'll remove your condemnation and guilt. He'll wash away your sins. It's a ministry of life, not death. It's a ministry of justification, not condemnation. He's offering this to all who come today freely. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. Amen. Well, that is uh, our first look. Lord willing, we will look again at this in three weeks' time. Um, and we will see some, some more encouraging things there. What I want us to do next time is to really walk a little bit more through what Paul says there. How exactly does Moses veiling himself, how is that a lack of boldness? We still haven't really touched on that yet. Also, Paul extends and says that Jews, even to his day, have a veil over their own hearts. He, he goes on to, to do some more explanations. There's some more profound things he says and we will look into that stuff next time, next time we come. Um, but, but that's it for now. Let's, let's go ahead and, and pray. Father, we thank you that we are reconciled to you. Oh God, you've taken our dead hearts and you've written your law upon them. You've given us life by the Spirit. You've pardoned our sins and remember them no more. God, I pray for the saints, those who know you here, that like Paul, you would grant them great boldness and confidence, not in themselves, but in the blessings of the covenant. As Paul says, our sufficiency is not from ourselves, but it comes from God who gives us our sufficiency. Oh, Lord, would you grant them great gospel confidence and boldness. Ask all this in Christ's name.